Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation, so sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. And welcome to this special episode of the Stitch Please podcast. I call it a special episode because this is an episode, a tale of two Lisas. I have, and I'm calling it two Lisas because I am Lisa, as you know, and my guest today is Lisa Shepard Stewart. And this is an extra special episode because for Patreon subscribers, you will see the video recording of this episode, which is amazing because I'm in my studio wearing a blouse that I made that is a slightly too small in the bust right now. And Lisa is in her studio in Rahway, New Jersey, where she is surrounded by her gorgeous fabrics from her travels all around, as well as a lovely prize that is associated with today's episode. She's got this gorgeous, which you can't, which you, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you see it right now. It's a 10 fat quarter bundle with a button and a postcard. And these have been handpicked by Lisa for this prize. And so the prize giveaway, it's going to be operating through her Instagram page, Cultured Expressions. There's a link to the page in the show notes. Also, the giveaway will close on the 17th of October. So be sure to go to her page. It's a follow for follow type um, giveaway. If you follow Black Women Stitch and you follow Cultured Expressions, and then you go to Cultured Expressions and tag a friend, you're entered. And guess what? If you tag a friend, your friend is also entered. So this is a very easy contest. Go to Lisa's page. When you get there, you don't have to make a comment about what you would make. All you need to do is tag a friend who would also be interested and you would, and you will both be entered in this absolutely gorgeous African fabric fat quarter bundle. So I am delighted to welcome Lisa to the program. Lisa is, she's an example of that phrase. We hear this phrase a lot, community over competition. And this is meant to promote the idea of mutual aid, the principle of mutual aid where people support and help each other. We hear people that people say they don't care about competition, they care about community, but few people actually do it. I think more people say it than actually believe in it as a practice. And when it comes to business, there's so much competition and stuff like that. There's so much jockeying. Even in Instagram, there's so much competition about, you know, who gets likes for this and likes for that. But when I met Lisa at a time when I needed help and support, and I didn't know her at all, a mutual friend, Carol Lyle Shaw, who was on the program last week, introduced us. Or she said, you need to talk to this person. And so I called her. And Lisa, from the very first hello, was so kind to me and so supportive. And I said, you know, I want to do a retreat for Black women. I know you do retreats and you've taken people to Colorado and to um, Ghana and to other places for your retreats. Just give me some advice. She didn't think, oh no, why is this girl coming after my stuff? This is what I do. I don't want to help. She was so generous. She was so helpful. She was, she really treated me like a peer, which I thought, which I was really honored by because I was completely new and had no experience. She has decades of experience, but didn't hold that against me. She leveraged that for my benefit. 
And that's what mutual aid is supposed to do. Mutual aid is if somebody has something that you don't have, you use that to help that person get what they need. And I will be forever grateful to her, to Lisa Shepard Stewart for helping me get started with Black Women's Stitch, helping me get started with the retreats, supporting me with the podcast. Like, hey, have you thought about doing this? Have you thought about doing that? And I was like, no, you know, like things like that. It's, it's just been wonderful. So again, Lisa, welcome to the program. Welcome to this episode. And thank you. So welcome and hello. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. After an opening like that, I don't even know what to say, but it's really just, it's been a pleasure to, to know you and to help you from that, that first event that I wish I could have attended. And I think a lot of it is just the passion that I have for it. I just want everybody else to have that same feeling and that same experience. So it's easy for me to share in that way. And it's just, it just kind of flows like through me even. It's not so much that I'm doing this and I'm doing that, but it just, the energy just flows and you have to release it. Otherwise it's no good, you know, so you have to help other people. That's so beautiful. The way you describe yourself, almost like a conduit. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's beautiful. So let's get started talking about your sewing story. How did you get started? How did you, how did you end up where you are now? What are some of your earliest memories of either sewing or how you knew that this was something you were going to be passionate about? Well, my sewing story or fabric story begins at the tender age of four. Literally, I remember having a favorite blanket. It was like a very loosely woven, you know, one of these little acrylic, you know, blankets that you just have as a kid or whatever. My favorite one, it was like red and blue and like really deep colors. And that was my first sense of my color sense too. But anyway, I was just enthralled by how all the threads kind of were held together, held in place, just like magically, they all, all the weaving of it. And I just thought that was fascinating. So, and I didn't really voice that at four, but I was just had an interest in it. Always cuddled it and always felt, you know, the whole thing. So. That led me to just a love of fabrics. Um, at age 12, I learned how to sew. I went to Singer, went back when Singer had, had actual stores in the mall, that kind of thing. And there were two things that happened at the same time. My grandmother was a seamstress before I was born. And then she, she then went into nursing and healthcare when, after I was born. But she had that sewing gene, I guess, as they like to call it, which kind of skipped my mother. My mother liked to sew by hand a little bit, but she didn't, couldn't deal with the machine. So as they say, it skips a generation. I picked up the jeans somehow. And between her winning a sewing machine and one of those puzzle contests, you remember in the magazines, they have those little word puzzles. You could win a prize. She won a sewing machine way back. Way, way, I'm dating myself, but way, way back. She won the sewing machine and said, oh, maybe Lisa would like this. Maybe she'll get into it. And I'm 12 years old. And I was never the type, you know, for summer vacation to go to camp. I was not that outdoorsy. I was like, give me a stack of paper and some crayons or pencils or I'm good. I'll, I'll write a story. I'll sketch something, whatever. I like my light bright, my etch a sketch. So I was that kind of. Right. Oh, like, light bright was the tr with the black paper and you would put the little punches in. Oh my God. And it lit up. Yeah. I mean, I could do that light bright and etch a sketch like all day long. So, and like I said, paper and crayons and um, what were those, those little fashion plates? You could, you could trace the little. Yes. I remember fashion plates. You know, they're coming back now. That's right. Cause you get, you get bodice and you would get a waist and a, and a legs, right? did come back for a minute because I saw a commercial. Anyway, I was just, anyway. So that was my kind of thing. I didn't really like to do the summer camp. So my mother, when my grandmother won the sewing machine and gave it to me, my mother saw an ad for Singer saying we have, you know, classes for kids. And, you know, So long story short, I took the eight-week session, loved it. And the culmination of that was we did a, a fashion show on the mall of whatever we made. And I made this green and white striped vest. And I was just so proud. I mean, buttonholes, the whole thing, first project. So it was great. And I learned what a facing was, you know, the whole, the whole experience. We modeled on the malls, like a little fashion show and everything. So that was great. And from there, I took off. That first sewing machine, I burnt out. Literally smoke was coming out of it because I used it so much. Had no clue you had to like maintain a sewing machine. I'm just like having fun and zoom, zoom, zoom and all that. 12, right? So 12, 12 year olds think that things last forever right? Ooh, but that was great practice when I got my first car at 18, because I knew I had to actually take care of it. <laughs> so the mechanics of things, you kind of retain the, the lessons. So it's better to burn out the sewing machine than an entire car. So had that machine, went through some other ones. I made clothes myself, my mother. For, I mean, I just made, 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 sewed, sewed, sewed the whole thing. This is from age 12 to, you know, high school. Then I got an interest in I thought, what can I do with this fabric interest? Because by then I'm like just buying fabrics and not necessarily African so much. I hadn't discovered that yet, but just 
in the fabric store enjoying life. So that led me to FIT. I studied marketing and um, communications, which was my other interest was writing and, you know, communications and all that. And I didn't really want to study textiles as a hard study, but that came later with different jobs, learning on the job kind of thing. I always be- I'm a big believer in learning on the job and you should get more out of a job than a paycheck. Like it should be teaching you something. Mm-hmm. So that was always one of my things as far as, you know, choosing where I wanted to try and, well, choosing where I would like to work and that kind of thing. So did that, went to FIT, couldn't wait to start working. So I went after my associate in advertising and communications, I got a job at a small company and in New York City. So I, I was still in the city every day. I said, well, let me go back and get the other two years, get the bachelor's in marketing. And at least I'd have a little full package, but I couldn't wait to start and, you know, be an adult or whatever. So, so I did that. First job that I had was a Maxine Fabrics, was a little um, family business, and we sold fabrics to custom tailors and dressmakers around the country. So my job was to actually go into the markets of the manufacturers, buy their buy their seconds and their overruns and all that, their, their leftovers, and make them into a fashion story. And then we swatched it and sent catalogs out. Great job. I thought I could be there forever. So That's love that. Okay. I'm going to ask you to slow down a little bit because this is all so exciting. So- <laughs> Just, gotta go. just to review, so FIT is Fashion Institute of Technology. Yes, is that sorry. right? And yes. that is a fashion and design school in Manhattan. And you were there for your associates. And, but because you were so excited, you're like, you know, I want to work and I want to go to school. I want to study and practice and sharpen my skills in the classroom. But I also want to put that to practical application all right now at the same time. So exactly. you got the associates for the first two years, and then you were also working. And then you realized, well, I'm here all the time. I might as well, the train is going right past school. Right, I'm the same train fare, right. So I might as well, you know, so you went and, and finished it. And so I, I just think that's really amazing. And then this, this Maxine Fabrics, like you creating fashion and style stories, going to manufacturers, going to, I mean, I think that this is, what you're talking us through is something really powerful in fashion history because a lot of manufacturing now has moved out of the right. city. So you got to go, to, there was, fabric was being manufactured right here in the U.S. and other places, but in addition to New York City, you would go in there and you would say, I'll take a little of this and this and this and this and this, and you would put it together. So can you just define real quick for us what are seconds and what are overruns? Well, in, manu- in clothing manufacturing, they may buy a thousand yards of this print, just to make it simple. Mm-hmm. And they only use 700 for their run, you know, whatever they're making, say they're making dresses for that season or whatever. They have another 300 yards left that they need to, need to get rid of. So someone like me or our company would come in and buy this. What's buy, well, that's not really seconds. That's just leftovers. That's overruns. Um, seconds are more like irregulars. Okay? Okay. We would go in and say, okay, I want to buy 100 yards of this red. And then I would go through either that manufacturer or other companies. There were a whole bunch, again, 7th Avenue at that time, all the manufacturing, you know, the, the companies were there. And then I would scout the, the market through our regular resources looking for coordinates. So maybe I'd find a bottom weight to go with it and a jacket weight. And I put a story together, being sure that we had enough of each, like at least, let's say, 100 yards of each one so people could kind of buy it together. Buy it together. Right. So we sold to, like I said, tailor shops and, and dressmakers all around the country. There was also a spinoff company that we sold to home sewers with little swatch kits. There was the 7th Avenue Fabric Club and Vogue Fabrics. We tried to emulate what Vogue Patterns Magazine put out. Okay. Uh-huh. We worked with them to try and say, well, they're using a blue stripe. I tried to find a blue stripe so you could make the same look, that kind of thing. So it was really cool. This job sounds like your job was to do fashion plates. Like yeah, I'm still there now, 40 yeah. years later. <laughs> like that's like your job. Your job was like, okay, I'm gonna take this top and then this middle and then this bottom, and then I'm gonna sketch on it with the and then make it easy for the, the dressmakers and tailors to present a look to their customer. And maybe they like the fabric combination, but they want a different style, or whatever. So they did that. And it was the best first job was the best job ever, still. I mean. You know, to be like 19 years old in the city every day, wearing sneakers to work and coming in at 10 and leaving at four. I mean, the whole package was crazy. And say, go, I mean, for me to go into somebody's shop and say, I want 100 yards of this and I want 100 yards of that and spend somebody else's money, ma'am. 
my God. If anybody within the sound of my voice can manage to find me a job like that with my current salary and benefits. I know. I mean, and that job couldn't exist today, even if, if I wanted to go back to it because there's no more fabric in the city. Like there's no, there are yeah. no sample rooms, hardly there's no sourcing, you know, there's so that kind of thing wouldn't really exist anymore. Yeah. And there's really no more overages because also the manufacturers buy so close to what they need or they'll sell the design first and then buy that much fabric. The, that whole business model couldn't even like exist today. Right, right. So it's kind of sad to me, you know, it's like, oh, uh, but. Wow. But that's amazing that you, that you were there for that and you got to have that experience and that shaped, um, would you, or would you say that that shaped, that that first job kind of shaped the rest of your career in the industry? Were there certain things that your next job that you felt like, okay, I've done this for a while, I'm really happy, but when I move to my next position, I want to make sure to keep these aspects, but also add this? Like, was that what you were, is that, was that part of the story? Well, one reason I left the company was, and again, it's like seven people, like small family business, was because I was still on my parents' insurance. You know how after you graduate, you yeah. your parents, and there was no insurance here because it's a tiny, you know, little family company. And I literally, one of the reasons I left was to get a real job so I could have benefits and take care of that aspect of, you know, adulthood. I was there about seven years, maybe, and no one stays seven years in their first job. You know, it's interesting. And when I read the description on the the, the at the boards at FIT, the the job boards, there wasn't a whole lot of interest. Everybody wanted to go for the big name designers, and I didn't really care about that, you know. And the 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 wealth of it of the job was not in the name. It was just what I got to do. And then I got to write about the fabrics too. I write the descriptions for the catalog. So I was writing, I was buying fabric. I was coordinating stuff. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. It was crazy. That's incredible. Yeah, I but, loved it. But it seems like you're kind of doing that now in your own shop, right? You're buying the fabrics, you're writing the descriptions. You're, <laughs> you're, you're still like, I'm, but now I'm paying for it. I'm not, I don't want somebody else to pay for it, but you know. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, a lot of my jobs have had either some combination of writing, sewing, selling, buying. It's been a real ride. So that was part of it. And then from there, I just moved on to some other. I found that job that had the, the benefits, not as exciting, not as autonomous and all that. But, you know, you, you learn to adjust and you do what you have to do. But that was always my golden job. It was great. I mean... <laughs> really such a beautiful story, you know, and I feel like the way that you painted, I feel like I was there with you, like walking alongside you, going to the warehouses and, you yeah. know. That wasn't glamorous because a lot of those warehouses were kind of gross and like, you know, you wear jeans because you didn't know what you're going to run well, into. And now, uh, uh, it's an actual warehouse, not like a Sam's Club warehouse where everything is like all clean and you have giant aisles. So these were like in old, like 39th Street buildings on the eighth floor, the rickety elevators, and you didn't know if you were going to make it out. And, you know, it was like, it was, there was some drama to it, but it was... At 19, you love that stuff. Like now I'm not so hyped about, you know, a mouse running by or, you know, but <laughs> 19, you're like, let's do it. You know, so it was fun. It's an experience. Look, there's rodents. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, the memories. And then the guys in the back that cut fabric became like my brothers and we would all, it was just, it was a whole thing. Oh, that's so delightful. So after you finished with, and you ended up getting a, a different job that had to have more structure and more benefits, how did you close the gap between that experience to publishing your first book? Like, how did you, like, this was like a lot of ground that gets covered between these experiences. It is. The job after that really didn't have any writing involved, and I still felt that itch to write about fabric and things. So I started doing freelance writing. Remember Sew News Magazine? Oh, yes, yes. Not to remember them, they're still out, but do you remember when they were like a tabloid newspaper? Okay, okay. Mm -hmm. printed on newsprint, and it was in a, I found it in a, in a fabric store once, and I was like, Sew News? And it was like literally newsprint. It wasn't even like a magazine at that point. You know, I don't and, think I ever, I don't think I knew that Sew News used to be an actual newspaper. I don't think I knew that. It was, it was monthly, but it was on newsprint. So it was like, you know, kind of not cheap, but inexpensively printed, I guess. And it was, I think it was black and white with some color insert. It wasn't like a whole color. It wasn't like a magazine like it is, you know, now, like it's big. So I saw that and I started writing for them and they had a, a um, column called Updated and Restated where you, you looked at an old fashioned, like a trench coat. Mm -hmm. And I would look into the history of it, write a little history of how epaulets came to be and you know, like a little history lesson kind of thing. So. The person writing that column left for whatever reason, then they asked me if I wanted to do that. I was like, sure. So I did that for a while and just did some other feature stories, found other magazines to write for. This is while I'm working full time, but just, again, I felt that itch to still write about sewing. 
So I did that. So this and is, all the while still sewing my was called updated and restated. That was the name of the that was the name of the column. Name of the column. So like, the column in Do you remember anything, any particular you mentioned the epaulets, for example. Do you remember a particular garment from that series that what that you wrote about differently? I think a lot about that now, like about old clothes, old garments, old pieces, and how you can modernize them. Is that what you were doing? Do you do you have any memories of like something that you might have talked about at that time? Yeah. It was more just taking the current trend and finding a detail. Like I did one on surplice, you know, necklines, the crossover neckline. Mm -hmm. So it was more like just what's happening now and just tracing the history, not so much trying to hack it so much. Okay. We didn't really do that much hacking then. We were like, so the pattern. Yeah. <laughs> but it was more just like looking back on historical, you know, like the history, like I said, the epaulets were like a military, you know, touch yeah. on the, because they, I forgot what it was. Oh, the, well, the buttons on sleeves are so that the soldiers wouldn't wipe their nose on their sleeve or something like that. You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast, and I'm speaking today with Lisa Shepard-Stewart, owner of Cultured Expressions in Rahway, New Jersey. When we come back, we'll talk with Lisa about her first trips to Africa and how that shaped her approach to the work that she's currently doing. Stay tuned. The Stitch Please podcast is really growing. Um, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and ask a favor. If you are listening to this podcast on a medium that allows you to rate it or review it, for example, Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please do so. If you're enjoying the podcast, if you could drop me a five-star rating, if you um, have something to say about the podcast and you wanted to include that, a couple sentences in the review box of Apple makes a really big difference in how the podcast is evaluated by Apple, how it becomes more visible. It really is a way to kind of lean into the algorithm that helps to rank podcasts. So if you had time to do that, to drop a little line in the review feature of the podcast, that would be really appreciated and it would help us to grow even further and faster. So for your book, I'm really interested about the story about that, about what you wanted to communicate and generate, what your overall objective for that was, because I really definitely want to talk about your travels and research and textile experience in on the continent, because I think that you have been such an important pioneer in that and communicating that and bringing those fabrics back from, from early days. Can you talk a little bit about that, about why you ended up writing a book to help home sewers learn more about African fabrics? It goes back to just the passion. In 1986, I went to Senegal. That was my first trip to Africa. Mm -hmm. And I went with a group that was um, a culture group from Chicago, but they did like general cultural tours to Africa. It wasn't like a fabric tour so much, but it was a general culture trip. But they said, if you have a special interest, let us know ahead of time. We'll try to hook you up with people there and make it more meaningful to you and personalize, whatever. I was like, fabric, all I want to see is fabric again. So they got me an appointment with the marketing head of a company called Sotiba, which some of you might recognize um, as one of the biggest African fabric mills, like West African fabric mills. And that was in Senegal. I think they had other offices too, but in Senegal, that's where the headquarters was. I went to meet the marketing director. Not only did he have access to African fabric, but he was cute and drove a white Peugeot. So I was all in. I was like, wow. And I'm like, what, 20, how old was I? 22 at this point, 21 something. So I'm, I'm just, yeah, again, I was just like, wow. This is apparently meant to be. And he was just cute. It was just, you know, we were flirting. It was like so much fun. And he gave me like 20 pieces of fabric to take home. And he's like, oh, don't go home. Stay another week. You know, that's a whole nother podcast. But it, it, was, it was a lot of fun. So from there, I came home with the 20 pieces from him as a gift and then whatever else I bought of boutiques and you know, all kinds of stuff and just loved it. I was like, I'm here. I have to get it now. That kind of thing. When you see something, you have to get it. So that's when that kicked in. 
And that's when my love for African fabrics in particular started because I just was, again, amazed by the artists and the look and the quality. The fact that it wasn't a, an Africa is all famine and war kind of narrative, like there was actual artistry. And I wanted to bring that to other people. And not that I didn't know it existed because that wasn't a surprise to me, right. but to really see it and be able to have a real tangible way to show other people through what I love anyway is fabric. I thought that was a real opportunity. So I started thinking about the book and all that, and which is African accents, but I'm going to grab it for you. Thank you. I, what I love about what you're saying, Lisa, is the educational process, right? That what yeah. you are doing is you are revising and intervening in all of these racist narratives that the U.S. has propagated about Africa, the story of like a famine and war, et cetera, et cetera, all of these things that create harmful impacts in one's imagination, right? right? Um, Go too. It makes you afraid to explore for yourself because it's like, oh, don't go there. And you know, it's, it's ridiculous. It's really ridiculous. So it's, um, mm-hmm. seeing that for myself, I said, what? And I wasn't thinking about doing tours at that point, but just bringing it to people in the form of a book that was manageable to me at the time. And I just felt like, again, it's my passion just kind of jumping out. So mm-hmm. I, I think that being able to kind of look and to see the artistry, to, to see the creativity. Even, you know, I think that this is becoming like right, right now in our current moment in 2020, people are doing more with this now, like helping to revise these racist narratives, helping us recognize that what we're looking at are actually racist narratives that we have to take deliberate steps to revise and to hold accountable. So I keep thinking about that. Important. What's that? That's important. What's tell that? your own story. I was saying to tell the story and I have it told to you, but to explore for yourself is really important. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. Absolutely. And to recast this, it's very much like what I think this might've been William Lloyd Garrison talking about Frederick Douglass. And he said, when lions write history, the hunter will cease to be the hero. Mm. Okay. And so the idea of the lions writing history this idea of seeing this from an African perspective, from a Black perspective, from a perspective that's not a colonizer's perspective, right? And it, and that's something I just love that you are undoing these narratives as well as building something really beautiful through textiles and empowering us to use our own imaginations um, and opening up spaces to us in a way that is so beautiful, and affirming. And so that's something that I really appreciate very much about what you're doing. And it's fun to it's practical. So, I mean, it's like everything, you know, I like something that's practical and, you know, decorating your house, obviously that's as practical as you can get. And so I just, that was just, again, my passion. And I thought people also would be, you know, coming to where I lived and say, would you get that mud cloth pillow? And for, or if they even knew it was mud cloth, first of all, some, well, some people did, but some people, you know, where's that, what's that fabric? And all that curiosity. I said, well, there's probably a book idea here because I hadn't seen any other DIY books right. with African fabric focus. It just didn't exist. It was all like a Martha Stewart kind of a take a plaid and a check and a stripe and a, you know, whatever. And boom, there's your living room. But, you know, cute, but it wasn't, I, there, there was no feeling in it for me. So right. I said, I'm be the only one who feels like that, who wants to have a more personal whatever, you know, so the, the warmth of these fabrics and sometimes the symbolism or the, the meanings behind them or how they're used traditionally, all that kind of becomes part of the story. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like that was really, really cool. So I, I thought, again, I can't be the only one who would like this, you know? <laughs> so that's my litmus test. <laughs> it's, I think that's a great litmus test, right? That I think it's funny because something that my therapist said to me once, she's like, for Black women, we often have to build the things that we need. That means that even though we are loving something and appreciating something, it's also a form of work, you know, that we, Mm -hmm. so like you writing the book was an example of creating this really important archive, but also this opportunity for other people to step in and try things that they might not have tried or that they might not have known about. And so you're like, you're teaching and you're also providing opportunities for participation in really beautiful ways. I was going to ask about how this turned to, like how the, you know, your first trip to Senegal in 1986, how did this end up 
leading you to do your own trips that were fabric focused or fabric and wine focused? Like, how did you, how did you get that started? It came a lot later, actually, because from 86, I didn't get back to Africa until I went to Ghana in 2001. So it was a long stretch of time. And then in that, in that space, I'm still collecting and finding things locally, but I hadn't been back to the continent until 2001. And I went with a company called Navica.com and they actually promote artists from all around the world. So it gives artists, say in small villages, that type of thing, you know, a platform to sell all around the world to get their pictures, you know, their, their picture and pictures of their work and all that. So I'm writing the second book, Global Expressions, which is fabrics from around the world, still a decorating focus. Yeah. And I kind of Navica because I saw they had some photography I was hoping I could borrow for the book and just, you know, some shots of this and that. So they said, oh, you're a writer. Would you like to come to West Africa with us and, and cover? And I think I was packed before I hung the phone up. I was like, hell yeah, you know. <laughs> and I mean, they paid for it. And it was just a, it was a, you know, simple kind of thing. It wasn't, you know, three, five star, whatever. But it was myself, representative from Navica, her name's Catherine, and Daniel, who is a videographer from California. They invited him also. So we all just kind of did the trip and I got to meet a lot of the artists that I now see like every trip when I go back, I see a lot of them still and the whole thing. That was just a great experience to just really take in the culture. Then that's when I realized that Ghana has the most fabric, especially for quilters and sewers. Mm-hmm. That's like the African Mecca is Ghana because there's so much there. I haven't been anywhere else since because there's so much I have to like still wow. explore. I haven't gotten to Mali yet. I haven't gotten to Nigeria yet and they're on my list, but Ghana, I always find a new thing I have to kind of work with. So, I mean, crazy, crazy resources. Everybody's talented there and just a lot. So almost every year since 2001, I've been in Ghana for myself, you know, shopping and and developing and finding people and connecting with people. So that's kind of how the trips began. And then in 2003 was my first group trip to Ghana that I did with another woman named Lorna Johnson. Mm-hmm. That was more of a general culture trip, but my part of the trip, my part of the itinerary planning was arts and crafts, fabrics, that whole part. There was a music track, there was an education track. So depending on your interest, we had different tracks ready for you. So that was the beginning of sojourns, even though they weren't called sojourns back then. And again, that sharing of it and seeing other people's eyes light up when they see like, this is really what Africa is like. It was amazing. It was like really amazing. So that gave me energy, you know, to kind of do it again a few more times and everything. And it's just the whole, this whole sojourn thing has just been like, again, I go back to, I can't be the only one who would love to go someplace and do textile related, you know, classes. And I can't be the only one who would like that. And by then I had a little bit of a following. I had customers and things and the website and guilds. So I had people that were interested in things already. Right. Like a, so I just developed the base and every time I added something to the business, it just, was like the next logical step, it seemed like. You know, no five-year plan. I don't, I can't do a five-year plan if you if I try it. <laughs> but things evolve. So and they worked out pretty amazingly well, I would say. Pretty well overall. Yeah. I mean, I have some things that didn't work out, but you just, you know, you do things, you do something else and something else works out and you pay attention and you just go from there. So learn and you do things a little differently next time. No, I I just love this. I love this all so much. This is so exciting. And what I love about it is that as you're telling your story, it reminds me of that blanket that you had as a four-year-old. Because when you look at the fibers, you know, when how weaving works, like you have the warp and then you have the weft. And it's like, you really have woven, I'm making this very strange hand gesture because my fingers- I I really can't wave my fingers. Yeah, I can't do that either. But- but what, you're, what you've done is like you've woven together this gorgeous life, you know, that is so filled with, from the outside looking in and just this glimpse of a conversation that is so filled with your purpose, you know, that like, it feels like you've been able to, people talk about walking in your purpose or whatever. It feels mm-hmm. like you've been able to do that since, not just since you were 12, but since you were four, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, exactly. It's really beautiful. It's really beautiful. And that's why I'm so glad to be able to talk with you today. Let me ask about what it's like to take all this information. You've got the training from FIT. You've got the wonderful first job where you were in there with manufacturers. You've traveled to Ghana and Senegal. You've written two books. You're very committed to 
African textiles and in some ways decolonizing the racist imagination about the whole story of Africa as a continent. You're supporting guilds, you're supporting local businesses, you're helping to build up these new institutions. How do you move from that to opening up your own brick and mortar shop? Like, how did that, like, I'm just, did you not think you were busy enough? That's what I think. Well, I guess there's a couple answers to that, that, you know, how things just kind of you have different situations that all kind of happen at once and it leads to something. It's, that's kind of what happened. Never thought I wanted a brick and mortar retail shop because I was into traveling and I, I wanted to be free at a moment's notice kind of thing. And I thought, oh, well, if you have a store, you have to be open, you know, every day. You know, that just that mindset of retail life. And I was like, I'm going to do that. But then one of the things that happened was people began to get used to the idea of pop-up shops the idea that retail doesn't always mean certain set hours and you may need to check first. People, especially with a specialty shop, people are got more accepting of that. Yes. So I began to think, well, maybe it may work in a space where I could actually do my own hour. And still the hours are pretty regular because I think that's important. But when I do have to close, I don't feel like, oh my God, you know, the world's going to end, whatever. So that was, ha- that was happening. Also where I live in Rahway, New Jersey, where we are now, the downtown area was being revitalized and getting more artsy. And they really had a hold, a real hold on like specialty shops and the restaurants were popping up. We have an art center, performing arts center. We have theaters and, you know, just really a really nice artsy vibe. And I said, they need some African fabric down here. It's the one thing that's missing. <laughs> well, that and Indian food, but I think that's coming. So I decided that maybe it would be a nice way to go. Also, my part-time job at Marcus Fabrics was beginning to change a little bit. Marcus Fabrics, for those who may not know, they do traditional quilt fabrics and crafting fabrics. I've been there, and that was, that was another part of the story. I've been there for 20 years part-time, just as a little, you know, as a, a supplemental whatever. You know, before I got married, even I had that, so that was helpful. So things began to change at Marcus where I felt like I really need to maybe up my the cultured expressions game and see what else I can do about it and grow it rather than try to find another part-time job. And I, you know, I just kind of, so anyway, long story short, I'm still at Marcus. Things are still great. We were bought out by another company. So I'm still there. Just again, nice to keep my, an eye, a hand in that end of the industry, the more generic industry. So that's great. But so the, those three things, the, the change in retail attitudes about retail shopping, the artsiness of downtown and the changes at Marcus that may or may not have come at, at in the end, they were sold, but I'm still there. So all those things, I thought maybe I could find a nice little spot in Rahway. And then also I was teaching in my house and I could only promote my classes to people on my mailing list that I kind of knew because you can't just invite you know, people to your house. So that kind of got a little old and stifling and limited. So I thought if I had a space where I could do some classes, put the fabric up, you know, have some special events, all in that Rahway vibe that was coming about and all those things that came at the same time. And I started to think maybe I should do a retail spot. So that's the the long, short answer. <laughs> and that was December of 17, 2017. I decided to do it in April and then found a space, another space fell through and, you know, just kind of plugging along, signed a lease for this place in October and I had the grand opening in December. So it was pretty quick. It wasn't a whole, you know, 10 year mission. To get so you're saying you had the idea in April of 2017 and then you had a space that didn't work out, but then by the time you got to December, <laughs> by the time you got to December of 2017, you had a shop with stuff in it and people could come and buy things. Yeah. That is not a lot of months between <laughs> April and December. Well, I, and I, I found the place in September. I signed the lease. I just wasn't ready till December because I had to do some little bit of carpentry and some electrical. So I really didn't open hard till December, but I signed the lease in September to start for October 1st. Right. Landlord let me, let me come in two weeks early because we had this thing called Culture Crawl in Rahway. And he let me come in just to, so I could put out cards and say the coming soon. Kind of, so he was really cool. He let me come in two weeks early. So really from April to like September, I was literally in the space. And the December was more like technically opening. Like a firm so, And I just felt like, like a, the space, it didn't fall through. Like I said, thank God, because this one is like so much better. You know, things happen for a reason. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. I just put my one foot forward and, you know, the rest, it, it, it came to me in, in part, in large part. So it was, it's been great. So now it's going on three years already and um, it's cool stuff. It's cool stuff. I, I love it here. I spent more time here. If there was a shower in the back, I'd barely even go home. So 
That's probably for the best that there's not a shower back there because then joke, by the way. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, all I need is a shower. I have a kitchenette. I got the bathroom, you know, and my office is in the back. I I feel very safe. But I mean, I mean, sometimes I'm here till midnight, like the, the height of the pandemic. Business was great, thank God, because everybody was sewing the mask and they were home and they wanted to finish that quilt finally. And right. I was till midnight some nice filling orders. So wow. you know. And I, I mean, the fact that I can feel safe here late at night, I just, there were two apartments upstairs, so it's residential and commercial kind of oh, space. Oh, okay, like a mixed-use type thing. Oh, that's The area's quiet. I'm across from City Hall and the police department. So, I mean, it's, and the post office for shipping. So, oh, I mean, I'm, wow. I saw this spot. I was like, this this can't not be. I mean, this cannot not happen. You no, know, that so. works. That's amazing. That's, and that you feel secure and that you've got, you get resources to, like, the post office, like when I say I'm putting it in the mail today, I mean it because I, I can walk finally across the street and ship your package. Wow. And, oh, and the other big thing with the whole downtown revi- uh, revitalization or whatever, Broadway train station is a block away. So my New York and Philly and all those folks can yeah. take a train. That was part of the reason, too, that I did this because, again, by now I had, I had customers and I had like a following or whatever you want to call it. And so those people could easily, you know, kind of come here and, and get, go here and there and, and and also have a nice meal around, you know, so it's like a nice little spot, like a destination day kind of thing. Yes, yeah, so it's like a nice little outing, right? It's that you can go, it's like, it's a day trip. I'm going to do a day trip. I'm going to go and I'll be there all day and I can get something to eat and I can maybe take a class. I can, like, I do some shopping. I can, whatever. Yes. Oh, there's, I, a, there's a Black-owned yoga studio and there's a couple other Black-owned businesses. So we all share, you know, send people to each other. There's also a hotel, not Black-owned, but it's a hotel. So if you want to go from the train station across the street to the hotel, come here, you can actually do a whole weekend. I mean, it's crazy. Oh my it's gosh, that's incredible. So like, have you, have, this is a perfect location and I'm very glad that your other one fell through. Because Me too, me too. And that was down the street, but just... Just, this is just better. This is just better. the walking distances and all of those things make a really big difference for people who like don't want to drive or if you or don't drive. And yeah, no, that's wonderful. Now, now I'm planning ahead about when when the outside outside opens up again and I get. To oh, that's when are you coming? I know because the virtual visits are great, but I mean, being here is like even better. So the virtuals, that's another thing that we that I started, and really I started doing those in 2018. The virtual visits, so people because again, I had people when I opened the studio. And put it in the newsletter, hey, we're opening a, a brick and mortar studio in Rahway. And people are like, well, I'm in California and I buy from you. So, you know, I started to think, how can we still service people and get them, you know? So a woman came in one day with her husband and she's like, oh, my daughter would love this. She FaceTimes her daughter in, in the studio. And so I can't even say it's totally, it's completely an original thought, but I, it spurred something. And she's like, oh, the daughter's like, oh, give me two yards of that. And I'm thinking, oh, shit, look at this. You know, so daughter spends like 50 bucks, like over the phone with the mother. And I'm like, okay. So I went home that night. I said, I need a little cute name. I was like, Glenn, we got, I got to get this. And my assistant, Edie, who was helping me at the time, I was like, what if we call it like a virtual visit? And then people, we can do this and that. But FaceTime is only on, on iPhone. I'm not an iPhone girl. I don't eye anything. So I'm an Android girl. So I had to find an app that was like that, that worked over both. Found Google Duo, WhatsApp, and now everybody's on Zoom. So that's our third option. Yeah. And- People, it's almost like being here with no no refresh, refreshments. That's what I said. No snacks. <laughs> Bring your own snacks. Because usually we have like fruit or something and tea and all kinds of stuff hanging around. But it's like that, but no snacks. You can actually see everything. We can do close-ups. You can, you know, you can count the weave if you, that kind of thing. So we were doing that. And again, pandemic time, we were set up for it. And now since then, I've gone to booking online for those because it was too much to kind of be on the phone trying to figure out whatever. Right, right, right. So people can still set appointments with you to do a virtual visit where you walk through and um, you'll show people things and people can ask questions. And I think that's just really genius. I am absolutely loving this. I, I wanted to ask just a couple of last questions. And what do you see as the future of of African fabrics for those of us in the U.S.? I feel like now that that, you know, I know there's so many different like controversies or like, you know, is this real? Is it authentic? Is it, you know, like, you know, I've seen some pieces at Joanne Fabrics and some, which was alarming, frankly. I saw them at Joanne's and I was like, this looks like it's on some colonialist nonsense. What am I looking at even? Well, 
Yeah, so I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. So that's why I was asking, like, how do we, I think actually it's funny because the first time that anyone, that in a, I was in a class that anyone ever even mentioned what could be considered some of the ethical elements or ethical dimensions of African fabric was mm-hmm. at another black owned fabric studio. This is one, this one that's closest to me. This was um, So Creative Lounge with Cecily. I don't know if you know her, but she, yeah, actually she and I did an event together a couple years ago, but it was, I went to the shop in like maybe 20, I think 2018. And it was the very first time that someone had said, we need to think about like who we're buying from, what we're buying, who we're supporting. Each purchase is giving money to some people, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. It was just, it was just an interesting conversation. And to me, it was a sign about how some fabric folks take a holistic approach. It's not just about buying what's cheapest. It's not about buying what's on sale. It's about trying to have an ethical sensibility about one's fabric acquisitions. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. It's thinking about the prints, just in particular, African prints, you know, that's a a term everybody uses and it's, it's just accepted at this point. But they had an an origin that was completely outside of Africa. Long, long story short, the Dutch were creating batiks and different wax prints and things for the Indonesian market. Indonesian market said, we don't want this. We don't like it. It's not our style. Get out of here. They took it to Africa to kind of dump it. And Africa accepted parts of it, but changed parts of it, too. They kind of injected their own style and their own, you know, kind of like flavor to it, you know, and, and so there's a, it's a real kind of a hybrid kind of thing. There's all different levels, different types, different makers, you know, different mills. And even to this day, when I go to, to Accra in Ghana and I'm in the markets and I'm buying things, there are Chinese imports there. So you, it's almost unavoidable. I mean, to say, I'm, you know, where was this print made? Somebody may come into the studio and say, well, where was this print made? And I'll say, I honestly can't tell you, you know, I know who I bought it from. And I know if I got it, whether I got it from Ghana directly or from one of my suppliers, you know, around the country that shipped to me and I know them. But a lot of times in the market, there's there's arguments over uh, among the vendors of over who's, you know, who's made who made what and where this come from. And I think I almost started I thought I almost started a riot once in the market because I asked somebody something and the other vendor said, no, 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 that's not from there. And they had this whole big and I was like, oh, my God. So I'm like, I'm done standing back watching this. And another one comes over and they're like, that's not from da, 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 da. And then they all they all crack up laughing because this is like just a thing for them, you know. And I was like, oh my God, I started World War III right here in the market. <laughs> but it's part of the culture. But they just were like into this whole heated exchange and they're like, you know what you're talking about? And then I, I was like, oh my God. All I said was, where's this from? You know. So a lot of discussion among them, a lot of different ideas and opinions. So my thing is, if you like a fabric, go more for the quality than where it's from because you may not know. You may not ever really know what mill it came out of. There are also mills in West Africa that are Chinese owned. Mm-hmm. So what's that doing for us? You know, and then they bring in their own workers. It's like a whole, that's a whole other podcast. But there's, there's just, I feel like if, if a fabric speaks to you, the design and everything, my thing is more so, is it a quality fabric? Because you want to always work with something that's quality and not a piece of junk, you know? So you have to kind of weigh that. And if you're of African descent, you it's becoming African because you're infusing your creativity into it. Right, right. That's really the, the best you can hope for. I mean, if you're going to not use a fabric because you don't know where it's from, you're denying yourself a whole lot of creative pleasure. Yeah. And you know, if you're that tight, tight with it. Now, what I can say is when I buy the, the Jacquard Batiks from Ghana, I work with four different ladies. I know they are making it. They and their artists do the batik right there. They don't make the base cloth even. That's important. The plain base cloth. They're again infusing their their creativity and their African look into it. So that's what you have to really kind of focus on, and then just enjoy the fabric because yeah. it's not going to change overnight. And it, you know, it's, it is what it is, and just enjoy it. You know, I mean, life's short. <laughs> so, hey, I like that. Enjoy it. Life short. On that note, Lisa, I'm going to wrap up. Thank you so much. Can you tell us where people can find you on the socials? I'm going to be sure to include all of your links for this. Okay, uh, the website is culturedexpressions.com. And to keep it easy, we're also on Facebook and Instagram at Cultured Expressions. And what else? Those are the main ones. I mean, they're the important ones, I would say. And then on YouTube, it's CE Fabric Videos slash videos. So CE for Cultured Expressions, 
fabric videos slash videos. We have some head wrapping videos. We have some quick sewing tips and some little stuff like that. So, oh, and I saw the mask videos. Too. I think you had some mask ones. Well. <laughs> mask video. Yeah, that was that was that was epic. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty epic. And and remember, y'all, there is a contest that you still have time to enter to get these lovely and absolutely gorgeous tin fat quarters and a button and a postcard. So you get all these treats that are available to you if you follow Black Women Stitch, follow Cultural Expressions, and on the Cultural Expressions page, tag a friend, and you all can both be entered to win this amazing fabric bundle. And with, with the button. It is gorgeous. Lisa, thank you. thank you so much. This has been amazing. Thank you. It's been fun. You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast, the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcasts directories or services allow for reviews but for those who do for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the stitch please podcast that is incredibly helpful thank you so much come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together <laughs>